Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 24. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Chuck Billy, Bay Area thrash metal icon and frontman for Testament. When Legacy lead singer Steve Zetro Souza split to join Exodus, Chuck Billy stepped in. Soon after, the band was rechristened as Testament, and Chuck has led them across countless world tours and 11 studio albums, enjoying a career resurgence with recent records like Dark Roots of Earth and Brotherhood of the Snake, alongside co-founding guitarist Eric Peterson and recent Speak and Destroy podcast guest Alex Skolnick, and the legendary rhythm section of bassist Steve DiGiorgio, formerly of Sadus and Death, and Gene Hoagland from Dark Angel and Death as well. The Smithsonian National Museum American Indian exhibit, Up Where We Belong, Native Musicians and Popular Culture, included Chuck, recognizing him for his contributions. He's a cancer survivor, beating back a rare form of the disease he was diagnosed with in 2001. And Testament's friendship with Metallica goes way back, of course. Chuck has taken part in covers of songs like Seek and Destroy and Holier Than Thou, spoken fondly of James Hetfield's influence on him as a singer and lyricist, and even wrote the foreword to the unofficial biography of James Hetfield, So Let It Be Written, authored by Speak and Destroy Episode 2 guest Mark Eglinton. So here it is, my conversation with Chuck Billy. This is Speak and Destroy. I first became aware of Testament, courtesy of Headbangers Ball, who would play, you know, the show was three hours long, and they would play one good video per hour, so my friends and I would tape it on VHS so we could fast forward through all the hair metal videos and find the one, you know, nuclear assault video or whatever that was <laughs> that right. was buried in there, and uh, yeah, Trial by Fire, that was my introduction, and immediately went out and bought the record on cassette and went back and bought the first record and, uh, you know, been uh, thrashing to Testament ever since. So, and it's, We're actually on the 30-year anniversary right now of the New Order. Wow. God, that's right. This year, yeah, this year's 30 for Seventh Son of a Seventh Son and, and Justice for All. <laughs> um, yeah, it's crazy. God, how did that happen? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. We turn around, it's like, oh, my God, here it is already. But that's okay. You know, I think um, we're thinking about playing some of it, you know, possibly we're talking about it for the Slayer run, but we haven't decided yet. But it, I think it'd be something cool. Yeah, that would be really cool. And obviously um, going out on that Slayer tour is historic, not only uh, because they're uh, coming off the road after that, in theory, um, but also you get Gary Holt there. And, you know, there's obviously so much history between testament and exodus and i just i think that's just going to be a really cool yeah. show yeah it's going to be it's a, an awesome package and i think uh for the fans as far as the fans go it's it's going to be a great day of uh you know extreme metal that's for sure yeah so take me all the way back to your discovery process with music in general and how that led into heavy music. I know in reading interviews with you in the past that you've cited, uh, you know, Sabbath, UFO, Judas Priest, a lot of classic metal and hard rock bands as early entry points for you. What um, did you have uh, 
I know you have siblings. Did you have family members that were into music, parents? Um, where did that first come from for you? Yeah, I had older brothers um, and younger brothers that were into music. My older brother played guitar and sang, and but he was more into stuff like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Hendrix and that kind of era. So, but the music was always the interest, you know. And with our age gap, it was heavy for us. Was you know, Kiss when it first first coming out, you know, opposed to them listening to Led Zeppelin, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so uh, you know, I was always kind of on the heavier side of music, I guess. It, you know, as far as uh, imagery and. Um, you know, the underdog kind of players, you know, I was always, you know, that old guitar, I was always driven towards the guitar, you know, because I always, you know, originally was a guitar player before I became a singer. So I was always drawn to the Michael Shankers or Randy Rhodes and those kind of bands. Yeah, it seems like, um, Sa- you know, Sabbath, Motorhead, uh, the Scorpions, UFO, it seems like a lot of those bands were you know kind of essential components and building blocks into what became thrash and the barrier thrash sound like you know i hear those those influences cited often by uh, each of you gentlemen that are architects of that particular sound um what do you think yeah, it, it, and it was great in in that scene you know growing up in that time was for me where i hit the crossroad of it that was right when like exodus was doing the first demos for bonded by blood and, um, you know, it was really like a new thing in Metallica as well. And, um, you know, at the time, my introduction to more of the heavier part was doing my first recording for like a early band, Guilt, that was in. And mm-hmm. Exodus was doing recording Bond of My Blood in the next room over, over in Prairie Sun. Oh, wow. So I, I was recording vocals and I heard Paul recording vocals, like screaming, like, what the hell's going on? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and it was Paul Bailoff laying down vocals, and they're like, that's Exodus, you know, recording their on a blood, blood, blood record. We go from time to time and lose my trail of death. And if you don't surrender, you'll bring your final breath. And I already knew the demo, the demo that was going around the bay and stuff at the time. And so I was like, well, holy shit, you know, because <laughs> I was uh, not in Testament or Legacy. I was totally far from that at that point. And then as it would be, you know, a year or so later, you know, year and a half later or so, I was in Legacy, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and and, uh, and man, Bailiff's kind of to, to go back to that, um, you know, the guilt era for a second. Bailiff's vocals just so 
unhinged and wild and drenched in reverb and you know i feel like uh, and this isn't to take anything away from seeing him live or other recorded performances of his but there's something magical about that bonded by blood recording in particular where i feel like they got lightning in a bottle with that guy on that record where it's just uh, it's just like he's from another world or something <laughs> it had to be crazy to hear from the other side of you know from right next door yeah, yeah. and the riffs and what paul was all about you know it was such catchy riffs but aggressive, catchy riffs. And, you know, with Paul, his style with that screechy style with a lower voice, you know, it, it was like, it was it was unique, you know. But to know Paul, you'd be like, yep, that's Paul. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like the Tasmanian devil or something. Um, Pretty much. So what was your introduction to Legacy? Did you um, Did you see them play before you met them or how did you first become aware well well that was uh steve who was singing for legacy um him and my younger brother andy were best friends hmm. so that grew up around my house and my family and and see, i see them a lot and my brother was a guitar player and so you know that was actually joined legacy and was playing us the demo and stuff, and we went, me and some friends went and seen them play one time out in Alameda, you know, at a club, and and I heard the demo, and I was just kind of blown away the first time around, just kind of like the three-song demo I heard, just how mature the song was for, like, you know, Alex being, like, 15 years old, and Eric, <laughs> you know, like, 18 years old, writing these really um, sophisticated kind of songs and mature sounding songs and I was like wow but Alex's playing was like incredible for his age and I was like man I got something here you know and 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 so that we were all gung-ho for Zet you know like right on man he's got a cool thing and and then out of the blue you know within you know a month after starting some shows he dropped the bomb that you know exited and leave Legacy to join Exodus. And he actually came to my house, you know, my younger brother, and told us, like, hey, man, I'm leaving the Exodus, our Legacy to join Exodus. Here's Alex Skolnick's phone there. Why don't you give him a call? They're going to be looking for a singer. Oh, wow. And right at that time, I just finished, like, taking private lessons. And, and you know, I had actually took went to college for about a year, taking, like, guitar and theory and vocals and just trying to become a singer. And so the timing was just right at the time when, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to look for a band and that dropped that in my hands. And it was, and they already had a record deal, you know, but, you know, Megaforce, of course, wanted to hear a new demo with me singing and uh, sent them the same three songs that Zet did on his demo. And uh, they came out to see us and, and, you know, that was a whole nother kind of awkward experience, you know, with the, the the day they came to see our audition in Oakland, um, that morning, you know, they showed up to the studio and they were just like wore out because they had been up all night because that was the night before they had found out that cliff at, you know, the bus wreck the night before. Oh, wow. So that, that, so that would have been uh, September so, 86. Yeah. So it was a somber day for us when we had our audition. And Johnny and Marsha and Maria were out in San Francisco for our audition, and 
we all kind of took the news just like, oh, my God, and, you know. And, and it was the weirdest thing. We did our uh, three-song audition. It was kind of like, okay, yeah, we got a deal. And it was kind of like that was about it, but it was kind of the most somber audition, you know, of, you know just because everything was going down with Cliff. Yeah, nobody's in a celebratory mood in the Barrier Thrash scene. No, no it was kind of like, okay, you got to get home. And they were, because they were just still devastated out of their mind, you know. Yeah. Um, man, yeah, what a crazy time. And I, I know from knowing her over the years, and, and I, well, really from knowing both of them a little bit, um, Maria was actually the person who told Dave Mustaine the news. I just, man, wow. the, the conversations that had to be happening were just had to be so brutal um oh yeah yeah. so going backwards a little bit you know when i had alex on the show you know he talked about his vantage point toward metallica being you know in a way up here in a contemporary but in another way a fan and you know he was a little bit younger than those guys and i think like him and rob flynn were were in high school when um you know no life to leather came out and that sort of thing what was your experience and an introduction into uh the you know hearing metallica for the first time and becoming aware of them um well it was early on you know definitely through just kind of the scene and us early just kind of being from dublin me and zet and bill demel and those guys being somewhere where we didn't have concerts we always had adventure into berkeley or san francisco you know so it kind of was part of the scene and just the talk because when we were in the Bay Area at that point, it was more of a glam metal scene mm-hmm. and uh, punk rock. You know, that was more of the scene coming in the early 80s into those mid-80s. And um, for this whole new movement, just so like, like bam, so quick. It spread so fast and the and just parties and just the, the vibe and the following just grew, grew quick for that style of music, you know, and Metallica when they came through, you know. I remember going like to the old Waldorf, you know, to those shows and I remember I think it might might have been the first time I seen them. I definitely was underage. I think I got thrown out <laughs> first, awesome. time, first time for for drinking, you know. Um yeah, I mean that. I remember that. That was probably one of the memorable ones that was like etched in my brain when I first seen them, because that place was like you know really small place, but it was as you know I guess looking back, thinking back now, it seemed like you know the Coliseum lighting's, but I'm sure it wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, back now, but they came out so powerful and like so holy shit, what is this? Like you know, my God. Um, but I had seen Cliff before because Cliff, actually, my senior year of my continuation, he was he played there at the school for, with his band Trauma. Oh wow! So I knew of, I knew of Cliff and his abilities, like like when I, my high school year, like holy shit, you know, he was amazing. And <clears throat> his one of his best friends, Mike Yastrzemski, was in one of our bands growing up, Rampage that my little brother was in, you know, that was kind of a part of, you know, me and him were roadies for them. So it was just, you know, the small world. So I, I, we knew of Cliff, and that's when he got into Metallica, that whole thing, like, holy shit, the you know, crazy Cliff from, the bass player from 
trauma sounds, you know, playing Metallica. <laughs> He's bring, uh, bringing his bell bottoms to Metallica, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, and making and making them making them come to him, which is part, such an amazing part of that Cliff story. You know, if you want me in the band, you got to move here. And things and fans grew so quick, and you know, and that was a, such a great time. And then, you know, we still had the day on the greens. You know, those were like mm. awesome. You know, and what a platform for Metallica to get and play a day on the green before they went away, and you know, just just launched them in that sense where you know they were destined at that point but for us in the bay area for them to play the day on the green was just like holy shit you know well i tell you if you came here to see fucking spandex and fucking makeup and hairspray and all this crap this ain't the fucking band we came here to bash our fucking heads together for 45 minutes what about you? All right. Hometown heroes from that very small but vibrant scene kind of getting onto the, the mainstream stage in a sense, playing Day on the Green. Probably yeah, seemed like an unreachable is. pinnacle at that at that point. You know, little did we know. Well, back we didn't really have those kind of things. I mean, after that, even growing up like, you know, we're especially experiencing all the festivals in Europe, and you think, man, we don't, America doesn't have that, but, you know, Day on the Green or, like, the Us Festival, I went to the Us Festival, you know, and experienced that, you know, and, like, wow, we can't even, we don't have that anymore here. Nothing like that huge, you know. Yeah. Um, so you've talked before about the impact of Kill 'Em All in particular, and I know, you know, of course, with Metal Allegiance, you've done Seek and Destroy, and there's that that cover you did with Jakey e. Lee. Talk to me a little bit about that record and what you remember about getting it and that sort of thing. And, and part part of that question, um, were you familiar with the you know the demos that were going around beforehand and, and already kind of into those songs, or what was your experience with that album? Um, I was with the demos, but mostly when the record came out is when I really got it because. I was still at that point where I was still trying to get it and, and you know was still like I'm here I know of it but I'm still I was still learning you know like around all that time is when I didn't kind of understand it especially for me coming through more of uh, an era of more like UFO and Thin Lizzy and more of rock and melody and stuff like that to where brash music was totally different you know and and so as a vocalist hearing thrash music timing of the vocals was to me was like oh like, like hearing it for the first time was like wow you know <laughs> it was so outer space to me so yeah the phrasing was almost like percussion versus melody in a way yeah it's all timing and syllables and the first time I'm working in Eric working with Eric on all the songs written and it was that's pretty much what it was it's like syllables and cadence and 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 trying to follow the music and one two three now and it's so off time and I'm like whoa I feel like I should be coming on the one and it's some weird offbeat you know it's just it's, mm-hmm. it was so, so new to me like you know where to come in and the timing of it and stop singing here and fit all these words in right here you know it's like so yeah so like the 
I was still getting it. And then so once I, I got it, even the, the earlier Exodus and Paul and Metallica and, you know, all the other stuff like that, I, I started really relating to and getting, you know, having a crash course, especially my first year in the band, you know. By the second year, I, we were writing the New Order record, you know, and I got to get in on the writing. So right away, I was just thrown in the fire, like, okay, you're singing, you got to write. And, and we did a pretty good job, like, within a year later, right, songs like that. And, I love that first record, um, but yeah, I really feel like uh, the New Order is when the band really the identity of, of what we think of as Testament really coalesced in terms of the sound. And yeah, like you said, things happening quickly. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the next two records came out over the next two years, <laughs> right? Wasn't it like Preach was well, like '89 and Souls? Uh, yeah, four years, four four years in a row, five years we put out a record. 87, 88, 89, 90, and 91. We had a record out every year. And so, yeah, we were, we were popping them out. <laughs> That's like Kiss, you know? Like <laughs> You mentioned Kiss earlier. Yeah. One of the few bands I can think of that, that did that and, you know, with, and without compromising quality to put out records that quickly. It's um, That's pretty impressive. Well, at that, point, at that point when we all lived home and we we're like just – you know, living under mom's roof probably and just writing songs and having focused and that really is something to it, you know, we're just like the New Order, like we're in Europe going, man, this is a weird place over here where they're there, you know, for like a few times in 87 and into 88. We wrote a lot of the New Order in the back of the bus on acoustic guitar. Mm. We just played it acoustic and, and tapped out the vocals and <laughs> had all the patterns and so, I mean, yeah, it was, uh, it was, we were just ready to go. It's just like, you know, we had to keep writing. That's so impressive. I mean, what a, what a run and what a, what an exciting time for the style of music right there in the late eighties and early nineties in particular. When we think about so many records that are classics of the genre and, and, you know, foundational building blocks all, like, all came out so close together. That's just really crazy to think about it and you know when people do these retrospectives right now when it's like you know what's the best record from 86 or what's the best record from 88 it's like how do you choose <laughs> you know it's like it's not yeah, fair it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly i mean it, and it's it, and music's weird it all depends who you were in 1986 <laughs> you know right you know how that record how that record affected you you know yes man i always say that time time place and circumstance right where it's who were you and uh what was going on in your life? What had you heard before that? What did what did 
was it the gateway to that it introduced you to? And yeah, a lot of times uh, this or that record is, is favored by us for those reasons. And I think sometimes people are blind to that. You know, you get into debates with someone and, and a lot of times I'll peel it back and I'll go, oh, well, you think that's the best Slayer record? Well, what, what was the first Slayer record you heard? Oh, it was that one? Okay, well, no wonder. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you could kind of... And sometimes I even get into the distinction of, of best and favorites, you know, where there's a record in a band's catalog well, I can, where I can go, well, objectively that one's the best, but it's not my favorite. My personal favorite is this one, you know, so... Like for me, music, like... You know, music is supposed to take you to a happy place, a little getaway. And there's even old songs that, you know, that I'll hear like growing up that's on the radio and I'll forget about. And when I hear them, I'm like, oh, it takes me right back mm-hmm. to sit in the back of my mom and dad's car. You know, like, you know, going somewhere, it just brings you right back to that memory of the like, first time you hear like some songs. Yeah. And those are always like good feelings, like for music, you know, when you, when music takes you somewhere like that right away to a good place yeah you know so like for me for me like growing up i always tend when i listen to music i always go back to my favorites like a lot when i was in high school you know i would go back to ufo or then lizzie or michael shanker or stuff that i just like pop in and it takes me back to this time where i can you know makes me get a smile and thinks about the good old times mm-hmm. you know that's um you know the ultraviolence and uh, the new order, and <laughs> that's a lot of those records for yeah. me. That was, you know, I was in high school, and that's, um, you know, that's I can hear I can hear anything from practice what you preach, um, you know, and immediately be transported back in time. Uh, one of my probably my oldest friend that I'm still in regular contact with. We were in bands together in high school and discovering all that music together, and yeah, we figured out just the other day that we've been friends for 30 years. So I guess it makes sense that the new oh. order is 30 years old. <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah. yeah. It, it could take you right back there for sure. Um, now when ride the lightning came out, you know, this is something. And one of the exciting things about Metallica is all of the different um, decisions they've made creatively and business wise and so on. It, it, it's like, it's like being a, a fan, I think of, uh, of sports of like a different team where you can talk about, the year that they had this coach or this quarterback or whatever and get into these, these fun conversations. I know going all the way back to ride the lightning, which was a little before my time in terms of being aware of them, that there were fans who were already complaining that there was a ballot on the record. And I've, I've read uh, some quotes from you in the past where you've said that, um, and I'm right there with you that um, some of the Metallica ballads are your favorite Metallica songs. So I'm curious, uh, you know, when when you heard "Fade to Black" and when that record was coming out, what your uh, what your uh, reaction was to it then? Well, I mean, for me, I enjoyed it just because it was another side to the thrash Metallica I was introduced to. <laughs> so, you know, for me, I, I enjoyed it, and I thought they did a great job at it, and you know. Um, it didn't hit me wrong. It hit me hit, hit me right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would say, you know, um, I enjoy the, the, the ballad stuff they do in the, when they shift gears. You know, um, especially in the early years, I thought they did it very clever. And uh, James's lyrics are always very clever and very meaningful. And 
and it works really well, you know, in the, when they first started introducing that. You know, I'd, I'd say over the years, you know, I'd say it's changed some, but those early years introducing a lot of that, I really enjoyed and thought it was a, you know, for a band at that point who would say, we'll never be commercial and do a video and all that stuff, had some material that just like was geared up for, <laughs> you know, a mass, you know, audience recognizing it, you know, and, and having some sort of medium to, to expose it. And I love that when they finally did make a video, it was still this disruptive, uh, you know, complicated, different type of video. And at that point, they were so popular that MTV had to play a Metallica video versus them courting MTV, you know. So it's like, we're going to have this war video with all this dialogue from this old movie cutting into the music. Right. <laughs> um, right. you know, yeah, I thought that was, was... But it was clever, you know, all of it. I just, you know, everything Metallica does, I've always just, you know... And and being just just thought, wow, that was that was very smart, clever, you know, and just and, and a lot of things they do, you know, the way they carry themselves in business and it's killer. I, I really really down with Metallica what <laughs> what they've accomplished. Now, as you were um, as as Testament was on the ascent, you know, both creative creatively and commercially, and obviously touring all the time and, and so forth. You know, I think as fans, we tend to associate, of course, the big four, and I think by anyone's estimation, you know, Exodus and Testament would be the other two bands that would, you know, if it be if it were the big five or the big six, you know, those are the obvious choices. And yet, um, one thing that's almost hard to believe in retrospect is that. Testament didn't play with Metallica for like decades. <laughs> like, like that pretty much just happened semi recently, right? Um, yeah, a few years ago in Germany, I think we had two shows. First time ever sharing the stage. <laughs> how, how now? How did those two ships keep passing for so many years? Like it's just, it's you know I asked crazy. Him that same question for thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> He probably thought you'd played together, right? Like, no, we've played together, right? And you're like, nope, <laughs> we haven't. I don't, I don't, I don't know the reason, but I don't know. Maybe one day. Yeah. You know. Obviously, you know, though you though you didn't play shows together in that time, uh, clearly there was a relationship. I'm curious what you remember about, you know, where they did those guys come out to Testament shows when they were home, and and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, even like right out around the, the legacy. And when we first came out with the first record, it, and the New Order, they used to always come, even practice what you preach, all the shows we played. Like I said, we did one every year, so we constantly had new music, and the show was getting bigger, and, and you know, we're making some noise. So they were coming to the shows, you know. Um, yeah, it was just, they were busy, and we were kind of busy at that point doing moving quick because we're like I said a record every year in touring we did stops you know for those first five years now uh, you know, Metallica has been so transparent uh, with their fans and the, the global audience uh, to a fault with their 
inner workings and the relationships between the guys. And, and in a lot of ways that, you know, James especially is very private in terms of his family and his personal views and all that, which I respect. Um, but I also do like how they've given us this window into how the dynamics within the band works. I think there's a lot of, you know, the two guys that directed that documentary have said that their relationship was parallel to things that were happening within metal. You know, you don't have to be in a band even to, to get that. But I, I'm always curious, um, you know, when I think about Testament, and obviously I'm a huge fan of Alex, both as a player and as a person, uh, but I really think about that duo of you and Eric um, as, you know, you were the you're consistent guys that have been flying the Testament flag the entire time, you know, you're both on all the records. And um, yeah. do you see any, you know, when you, when you see something like some kind of monster, do you see any parallels in that bond between Not James and Lars? No? Not in our camp, you know, I think we're very fortunate, everybody. I think in our case, because it took us to do a breakup, to realize, you know, if we're going to do it a second time around. Um, you know, I, th- I think we're prepared the second time around because we're all matured and grown up. And first time around, you know, I think th- the age difference, and going on the road, and Alex being as young as he was, he didn't never experience his teenage years, his first, you know, six, seven years from 15, you know, to 23 or whatever, he was on the road. Yeah. Until he left the band, you know. So things grew up, happened fast, and, and grew apart quick at the end, you know, when, when, we, when we had the breakup. And so for him to you know, come back, you know, that, that was like a whole nother thing, you know, it was like, you know, it was, it took, I think, you know, I hate to say it, but almost like my illness having cancer to get Testament back together and quite a few other Bay Area bands actually mm-hmm. at that point, you know, because of uh, the show. Yeah. Thrash, uh, thrash, thrash of the Titans. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of opened the door for Alex and Greg and Louie all came out for that. And at that time we were recording um, First Strike Still Deadly album. Mm-hmm. And I asked Alex if he was into playing the solos and he came in and he, he did the next day after the show. And right away, it just, his playing and, and the licks and he wrote those leads it just took me right back to like, again, took me back to a place, you know, mm-hmm. that I remembered, you know, Alex playing and just his style. And it was like, wow. And, you know, and as the universe kept spinning, our friend Andre from the Dynamo called me up and said that he had the original Anthrax together and was going to play a Dynamo festival. What, what's the chances of getting the original Testament? Mm. So, I said, oh, I can ask. And it was not too long after that Thrash of the Titan show. And everybody said, you know, I told him it was Anthrax and, you know, he passed the Mitchell original and kind of makes sense. And everybody said, yeah, it kind of, kind of makes sense. That would be fun. And so everybody said, let's do it. So we got everybody, you know, all the way from Louie and the total original lineup. And, uh, one show kind of turned into uh, 10 shows and and then it turned into a few months 
And then, and then, you know, a few years later, well, not shortly after, Louis couldn't play because his arthritis. So that's when we had to decide that he's going to step down and Gene Hoagland's going to come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then Greg left uh, not too long ago, decided that he was going to call it quits, and then Steve DiGiorgio came back into the picture who played on the gathering record. And that rhythm section right now, by the way, I mean, that you know, those two guys made my favorite death records. Um, you know, and of course, you know, Darkness Descends is a classic. I mean, you know, Gene's obviously played on so uh, many amazing records. And, uh, you know, I, I would argue... Tell her back up. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I would argue that Dark Roots and Brotherhood of the Snake are um, two of the best Testament albums. I mean, I, you know, I've never sat down and ranked them, but I, I know those two would, would rank really highly for me, maybe even number two and three. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah, that's Modern you. Testament, so... Yeah, we're pretty proud of the, the Modern Testament, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's just weird the way this all evolved and how it came around, you know, because at the time when I got ill... Um, there was kind of a revolving door of drummers, bass players, guitar players. So we weren't really like touring and working hard. You know, we kind of almost like gave up and just kind of like, you know, did shows here and there. So once Alex and the reunion happened, that's when we kind of decided to shift gears and say, you know, let's be a touring band again. And so at that point, since we've been touring a lot, you know, I think things have picked up, momentum's picked up, we kind of spread the word that we're doing it, we're having fun, you know, where there's no issues in the band, no drama, so it's like, it's all good right now. That's great, and you know, it, it, what's funny, as you mentioned earlier, seeing Cliff playing in trauma, you know, in, in continuance school, and then you mentioned, you know, uh, Greg leaving the band not that long ago. I believe he's playing bass in Trauma now, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so talk about just, the, yeah, the small world and the full circle and all the weirdness that we're kind of talking about. Like, that seems to fit right in in some crazy way. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a small world. And, and kind of, you know, getting back to that, then that sort of mid-'90s era, and, and obviously, you know, what we touched a little bit on what was going on with, with Testament in that, in that time, mid to late-'90s. Um I love well early '90s even. I love that uh, when Testament covered Metallica that you did a Black Album song because I'm a, an adamant defender of the Black Album. I love it start to finish, um, and you know it, I think it sold another four or five thousand copies last week, which is insane. Oh. Yeah, uh, what was your feeling when the uh, Black Re- Black Album came out? And um, you know I, I can imagine there was a, a sense with a lot of bands and it's come up on the podcast before of the, uh, you know, the big wave lifting all ships and that record kind of taking things to a new level and widening well, the, well, uh, what's possible. I remember like the, the, the night I was seeing enter Sandman, you know, that I, I remember like, I remember where it, it was uh, the gym and it was basketball league right after the game. I can't remember halftime. It was like the video is going to be on, so we all like gather around the video or the TV, and that video came on. And it was like holy shit, you know. It was just so heavy. <laughs> it was just like it was like like it was like definitely shifting into a whole nother level. We, me and my friends, just looked and said, "Holy shit!" <laughs> you know, that was just like 
wow. It was it was definitely like the tone and the, the drums and how big it was and, and and that song it was just so catchy and the hook and so clever again you know and it was like wow and I actually I was at the gym with my friend Willie Lang and he was in was actually almost was the bass player in Metallica you know he was up against um, Jason Newstead who's between Jason and Willie. Oh wow! So me and Willie, Willie's always been a close follower and still a friend of Metallica guys and stuff. So we're together when we seen the video together. We're just like, holy shit, man! We're just like blown away on the production of it. Just so heavy and yet also so deceptively simple. I remember when someone pointed out to me that. Inner Sandman is basically one riff the entire time, and then it's... I never heard the song the same way again. I was like, wow, you're right. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's crazy, you know? Yeah, it's so simplistic, but it's all on the cadence of the drums. You know? Crazy. But yeah, it was just... It was, um, you know... From, you know, them being known as fast and thrashing, it was just the overall power of it is what just, like, bulldozed you. And does that then open up conversations, you know, within a band like Testament who are peers and friends and that sort of thing where you go, okay, now this is, you know, here's another level well, of what's possible? Of course, everybody wants to, like, sound like that. It's like, okay, we need to get the drums big like that, you know, and... This year, I'll hear the guitars, you know, yeah, you know, that's what everybody, they set the bar. And in the recording world, you're always trying to like, okay, put it, put that Metallica song on again. And, you know, got to be that big. And it's just, there's no way you find the magic of something like that. That's just, you know, some, some mixes are just magical like that. Yeah. I, I was, I remember I was talking to my buddy Cece, who, uh, plays drums in the band Black Veil Brides and uh, they did a record with Bob Rock a couple of years ago and he was telling me about one of his first conversations with Bob and Bob was saying um, you know so what kind of what kind of drum tones are you into like what are uh, you know what are some reference points or some records that that you like that we should should kind of aim for and CC was just like uh the Black Album <laughs> like, produ- produced <laughs> produced by you Bob Rock <laughs> like that that'll work right. just just do that again yeah that'll work <laughs> Just give me that one. Yeah, push that yeah. button. It was only that easy, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but it is these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, it, well, I mean, it God, is. you know how many yeah. re- you know how many yeah, records that's... your drummer has played on that no one knows about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now you can have this tone. Yeah. yeah, I think some of those programs are literally Gene playing the drums, if I'm not mistaken. They are. Uh, yeah, he's he's at least on a lot of pre-production demos. If not, you know, who knows how many finished albums? <laughs> That's no great. Doubt. So yeah, uh, you know, kind of moving forward into the '90s. I know, obviously, the load reload era is a, a controversial subject when it comes up on this podcast. Um, people in different camps and with different points of view. I know that you've expressed that wasn't your favorite period uh, in the band. Um, and you know when what's interesting and, and I think what was also really healthy for the metal scene uh, you know we had the Black Album and then around the same time we got this sort of you know Pantera went on steroids 
And then, you know, later in the 90s, uh, when load and reload and stuff like that is happening, bands like Testament delves kind of more into the more extreme side. And I, and I and I and I personally think that all of that's really healthy. You know that there's only that there's these dynamics within the scene and and uh, you know different types of records for all of us to check out. W- were there songs from that era that that eventually connected with you in some way? Or, or you know I know you know some people have said that when they see the band live now and they hear Fuel. Uh, in fact, Alex was one of the people who said this. You know that all of a sudden you go, oh, I didn't think I liked that song, but it works in this live setting. You know the dynamics of it or whatever. Did you have Kind of a similar well, experience, or what was your take on that era? It, it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be my first choice of songs to, to pick, like for the live set. <laughs> right. Um, I, I would, I would think that over time, they probably have gotten better playing those songs and perfected, and James probably singing them a little better. To me, when I hear some of those those records. And I love James, and I love his brilliance and how clever he is. Those those lyrics didn't grab me. James didn't grab me like he normally did with those lyrics and and just the phrasing of it. I mean, I don't know. Just it didn't hit me like it did, like the other records. Just grabbed me like you know by the collar and it pulled you right in. So that that's why they weren't my most favorite. Um, I would think if the music was, you know, mediocre and, and was really, James had some really killer, clever shit that grabbed me and it'd be a different story, but it just, all of it together just didn't grab me. So that's why that's just that arrow. I mean, if I'm going to hear a record and put on Metallica, that's, I'm, not, I'm not grabbing that one to play. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all, just that one. <laughs> Fair enough. And, you know, while we're hanging out here in this uh, late 90s, mid to late 90s era, uh, you know, I've had um, Andreas on from Sepultura on the podcast, and uh, a little while back I had Igor on as well, and both of them, you know, we talked about a little bit about the split with Max, um, primarily because, uh, you know, I know that they were tight with Jason Newstead, and um, there was, you know, rumors that Newstead was perhaps uh, a possibility to front Sepultura. But uh, both of them talked about, uh, and very favorably, um, your audition for Sepultura and that you had, um, you know, put some stuff to tape and got it in front of them. And, uh, they both had very, uh, kind and appreciative things to say about that. What, what can you tell me from your perspective about that moment in time? And, you know, as, as a comic book fan, uh, I think of it as like an, a, what if alternate universe, <laughs> you know, what if Chuck Billy would join yeah. Sepultura? It, it was a, it was a last minute decision. Um, I don't know if we just hit a crossroad to where I don't know if I was just things was there some grass greener on the other side I don't know but it was just kind of a last minute thing I said you know what I'm going to do a demo send it and I just sang three songs and sent it in and when I sent it they just right away said you know thanks so much but you know unfortunately we had already chosen Derek already we had already made had our mind made up you know Thanks, thanks. You know, we wish you maybe you'd have sent it sooner, and you know, good luck. And that was it. <laughs> you know, and yeah, it is a what if. You know, and and you know, as the world turns, what well, I wouldn't have the three records I do right now. You exactly. Know. You know, and something that both of both of them talked about, which I think was ultimately probably a smart move for them. They didn't want to get somebody who 
was a contemporary or a peer or, you know, because once you combine, then it become, you know, then it's Sammy and Van Halen. You know, it's like two forces coming together. And I think they really wanted somebody that was more of an unknown that would just kind of be absorbed into the Sepultura thing rather than, you know, it would inevitably be Sepultura plus Testament in the mind of all of, our, all of us fans, you know, because um, it's just, you know, two big presences uh, combining. So, yeah, definitely everything happened the way it should have. Yeah, the the universe wasn't lined up for that one. <laughs> Indeed. And thank God, because we got all, the, all these records yeah. we've been talking about um, more, much more recently. Second guest I had on the, you know, we're 20-something episodes deep on the podcast. The second guest I had was Mark Eglinton, who wrote the uh, So Let It Be Written book on James Hetfield. Right. And the foreword is, of course, by Chuck Billy. Uh, what well, can you tell me about that? And how, how did that come about? And... Um, you know, what did you, what was important to you to express when you put pen to paper, so to speak, in crafting that intro? Mark approached me, um, you know, I think he was talking, or think trying to do a test as well. But he approached me about doing that, being from the Bay Area, and I was very honored, like, of course, you know. Um, can't remember what I wrote, but I'm sure it's all good stuff. But I mean, <laughs> James is a big inspiration and a big, part of who the Bay Area is known for around the world in the universe, you know. Think Bay Area, old school Bay Area, you think Metallica, you know, right away and that's just on the old metal heads. So uh, I thought it was just a very, very cool thing. I thought I was honored. Um, did you get an opportunity to mention that to James? Does he know that you wrote that forward? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't mention it, you know. Yeah, just you're always curious what what uh, crosses the radar and and, and what doesn't. Um, I would imagine yeah, I, he would hear about it. Whenever I cross paths with James, it's at a giant, uh, yeah, Giants game or Raider game. <laughs> nice. There's some sporting event, you know. So you know, we don't talk shop. We just hello, James. How you doing? How's the family? And you know, keep it short. Yeah, you should. Uh, you should ask him about uh, bee farming. <laughs> I, don't know if you, I don't know if you heard him on Joe Rogan's podcast, but he did. He went on a whole thing about raising. Yeah, so cool. Yeah. And it's funny, at a certain point, Joe Rogan, you know, James is like, your listeners don't want to hear this. And he's like, no, they do. And I'm, I'm in my car going, yes, I do. <laughs> keep, keep talking about the bees. This is awesome. <laughs> I was totally into it. Yeah. I know. It was shortly after I listened to that, I drove by a little bee farm just to remind me of him, like, I can't see James out there like there's <laughs> you know, harvest harvester of honey. I guess would be the <laughs> yeah harvester of honey. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. Well, yeah, and that brings me to uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about. Actually, uh, you know, in talking about Mark and books in general, I know that you had mentioned a year or two ago uh, that there was possibly a testament documentary and or book in the works. Was that um is that something that's moving forward or backburnered or we're still have. We still have all the footage of the documentary. We still have some people to interview. Um, we just haven't put a time stamp on when when it's going to be finished. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Definitely something's going to come out. And we're actually talking about um, another photographer friend of ours is going to possibly do just like a picture coffee table book. Mm. Some really old cool stuff that that 
has never been released that he's had, and he goes way back, and he's done a lot of sessions with us in the early days that we couldn't even remember. He had mentioned that he'd seen. He's like, oh, my God, you guys are going to believe it. So it's, there's gonna, there could be something cool coming out in the future. It's our friend Gene Ambo. Mm. Uh, Gene uh, is our friend from Chicago. He grew up with all the Anthrax guys, shot a lot of their early days. Oh, cool. And Bay Area guys. So, yeah, he, he's got so much stuff. I guess Kerrang! when you know they stopped being metal, I guess they had all the slides of all the early 80s photographers there that they hadn't, couldn't do anything with all that work. So they just sent out all these letters. I know a lot of photographers that ended up going to London. They just were at our show last week. They were going there to Crane to all gather their slides and their, their photos back. That's so cool. So, so all these photographers got all these archives of all this old cool shit. So we're going to take that and, and make it into a nice cool picture book this by that particular uh, photographer that is badass definitely yeah if you need a foreword or bios or anything for any of that stuff <laughs> drop me a line yeah happy happy to contribute um yeah maybe you get a hold of if james can do it for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly a turnabout is fair play <laughs> right. that's awesome and, you know, uh, well, that last thing while I got you here, you mentioned, you know, we talked about Thrash of the Titans and you mentioned the illness a while back. Um, and I haven't, you know, I don't see it come up, which I I always figure no news is good news. But um, everything uh, everything all good? Oh, I'm all good. I, I get my checkups annually and I take care of myself. You know, I quit drinking. I'm just trying to be a little more healthy, health conscious and taking it day by day. And I'm I'm, I'm, I'm good to go, you know. Performing awesome. better than ever, you know. My voice is feeling stronger than ever, and good. And we're we're preparing to write a new record by the end of this year. So nice. They're, they're looking good. Well, Chuck, thanks so much for making this happen. Uh, I, I feel like I hear myself say this a lot, but I've been I've been blessed to cross some people off the wish list. But you were right there towards the top when I kind of came up with the idea of doing a Metallica podcast, and so it's awesome to have you on here. Follow Chuck on Twitter at Chuck F-C-K-N Billy. That's Chuck fucking Billy without the U, I, or G. And be sure to follow Speak and Destroy on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where we are constantly posting bits of Metallica history. The Speak and Destroy YouTube channel is constantly updated with playlists collecting all sorts of rare clips, and SpeakandDestroy.com features some deep dives with our guests. And you know the drill. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. Make sure to check out past episodes with guests like M. Shadows, David Ellison, Rob Flynn, Blasco, Andreas Kisser, Lizzie Hale, Jamie Josta, and more. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Check out our sister show, No Prize from God, which features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Guests have included folks from Killswitch Engage, Emperor, Integrity, Alter Bridge, Demon Hunter, Under Oath, and more. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.